Well, if you would turn uh, with me in your Bibles to Psalm uh, 2, the second Psalm. Uh, if you um, don't know your way around your Bibles, if you open the Bible in the middle, you'll probably find the Psalms, and they're numbered 1 to 150. If you turn to the second Psalm, uh, that's where we're going to be this evening. So let me read this psalm. So, Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart, and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath, and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me... I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Well, this is God's word. And I've entitled uh, this uh, message, The One to Worship. The One to Worship. Psalms uh, 1 and 2 kind of stand as as gateposts to the Psalter as a whole. Uh, Upon these psalms really hangs the entrance gate into the worship of God. Or you could look at Psalms 1 and 2 as uh, kind of guards to the temple through whom you must pass if you want to come in. And the two Psalms uh, are linked together. Psalm 1 speaks of the way of worship and Psalm 2 speaks of the one to worship. Psalm 1 begins with blessed is the one in the first verse and Psalm 2 ends with, blessed are all, uh, which is kind of a device called an inclusio, where a theme or word is bracketed, uh, is, is bracketed together. Uh, and the text of these psalms are bracketed together by that word, blessed. Psalm 1 says that we're blessed when we delight in the law of the Lord, and Psalm 2 shows us the king whom that word of God 
reveals to us. The king who, if we are to be blessed, we must worship. The word blessed, by the way, uh, means that we are living life as we are designed to live it. So, for example, I drove my car here this evening on the road. If I drove my car here this evening on the canal, my car would break. In other words, it wouldn't be blessed. Why? Because it's not going according to what it's made to do. Uh, A whale can survive on the beach for a time, and it might want to get out of the water, but it's not blessed unless the whale is in the water. Why? Because a whale is made to be in the sea. And as humanity, we are blessed when we live life under the rule of our king, under God, under his son, Jesus Christ. And when we live as we are designed to live, to worship God, then we can be described as blessed. Hopefully that makes sense. It doesn't mean that we are always happy. I know uh, some translations use happy instead of blessed. I think it's unhelpful because you can actually be blessed and sad at the same time. Jesus said, blessed are those that mourn. Okay, so blessed isn't about being jolly all the time. Being blessed is to live as we are made to live. And Psalm 2 shows us the king whom we must worship for this blessing. And Psalm 2 shows us the utter craziness, the folly of rejecting him as king. And the psalm is broken into four sections where we hear four voices speaking. We hear the voice of the wicked nations. We hear the voice of the Lord. We hear the voice of the king. And the voice of the psalmist. And these voices show us that blessing is found in Jesus. That he is the one to worship. That he reigns forever. And that nothing and nobody will ever change. Jesus Christ is king. And if you want to enter into the the worship of God, and it's put here in the Psalter because if you want to enter into the the Psalter, into the worship of God, and sing these songs, then it is only through God's King that we can come. It is only through Jesus, or in the words of Jesus, he is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through him. So, let's look at these four voices and see how it builds in this psalm. So the first voice is that of the wicked nations, and it shows us, number one, verses one to three, the rebellion of the nations. That's the first point, the rebellion of the nations. And so notice in verse one, the psalm begins with a question. So if you look at the verse, why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? Nations and peoples speak of those who are not worshipping God. They are wicked. Notice what they are doing. They are raging and they are plotting. They are making evil plans. The word plot, by the way, is interesting because in the Hebrew, it is the same word 
as is translated meditate in Psalm 1. And in Psalm 1, the blessed person meditates on God's law. And to meditate means to to kind of mutter aloud, to, to call to mind. And so the blessed person is muttering and calling to mind God's law. But the wicked person, the nations here, the peoples, are doing the same thing, but trying to get rid of God's law, you see? But the psalmist asks, why? Why do they rage against God? Why do they plot? And that word rage can also mean conspiring. In other words, making plans. They're raging against God. They're plotting against him. They're trying to bring him down. And the psalmist says, why? And there are two reasons that he can ask why. One is that it is unwarranted to rebel against God. Unwarranted. Because God is good. His rule is blessing. Why would someone rebel against such a good and gracious king? But secondly, and more to the point of the psalm here... The raging and the plotting against God is pointless. Notice how he says at the end of the question that the plots are in vain. They are in vain. It is utterly futile to rebel against this king. God is all-powerful. He rules over all as creator and sustainer of everything. You cannot undo or overthrow his word. It is Vanity. It is futile. It is pointless. It is in vain. And in verse 2, we see that the kings of the earth are rising up and they set themselves or they, they, they counsel together, it says. That means they are working together. There is a universal and organized plotting against God. This isn't just random or coincidental. It is an organized, universal plot against the Lord. And verse 2 tells us who they are plotting against. Notice it says, against the Lord and against his anointed. So the Lord is God and his anointed is his king. In in Acts chapter 4 and verse 25... Uh, We read that this psalm was written by David, who was the king in Israel. The anointed, chosen ruler of God's people. And David, as king, did find that people raged against him and plotted. But we'll see that this psalm speaks of a greater ruler than David. It is ultimately speaking of the anointed one. Or the Messiah. Or the Christ, all words which mean anointed, one, Jesus. People here are working together against God the Father and against Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And when you think about it, people uh, in our day, I don't know if you find this, but they don't tend to rebel against the idea of a God of some kind. People, people love sometimes to even talk about God and his existence. Where the rebellion comes is when you define who this God is. Jesus is God. That's where the rebellion is. The Lord is God. 
That's where the conspiracies and plots come from. Or against the word of God. Against a biblical worldview. We see then when you talk about God's word, the Lord God, about Jesus, his son. Well, then you find the rebellion. And we see this in verse 3. Look at what the the raging and plotting is trying to do in verse 3. So they're speaking here. Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. So the rebels see the rule of the Lord and his anointed, not as the way of blessing, which you see in the first psalm, but as restrictive, as a set of chains or shackles uh, or bonds or cords that, that hold us back from being who we are really supposed to be. I cannot be myself. I must express myself or whatever it may be. And the Lord and his anointed, well, they're holding me back. They want to live their own way. They want to set their own rules, mistakenly thinking that it is the way to freedom. As if, if we get rid of God's chains, we won't have any, not realizing that they are then chained to their own selfish desires or whatever other false god they may be following. And so the rulers, they set themselves and they counsel together and they try to throw off the law of God. And we see this today. They want to suppress the church of Jesus Christ by the persecution and murder of Christians in many countries in our world. They want to redefine what marriage is or what a man and a woman is. They want to outlaw Christian practice or some of what Christians might say. They want to decide when life begins and how and when it should end. They want to be in charge of the world and run it in ways that benefit them and forget everybody else. And this is seen in our world today, but it is a story as old as time. Because in biblical history, when people like Pharaoh and Jezebel and Haman and nations surrounding Israel and world empires, we see them also trying to rage against God and plot to wipe out his people. All were driven by Satan to stop the coming of the anointed king that brings God's kingdom in. And today we see the kings of the earth and the rulers conspiring together again. We see evil despots and governments. We see Hollywood, political leaders, sports teams, the music industry, corporations and schools uh, counselling together to try and overturn God's moral law to try and break what they see as the chains and shackles of God's words. And we see it all the time. Darwinian atheistic worldviews and the rainbow flag are just the latest incarnations of this in the West. And they are everywhere. Our children are taught these in school. They are on pretty much every movie that you watch. They are in every new song that comes out. And our children are rammed with this stuff every single day in our schools. And so they grew up believing it too. And these mantras and ideologies... They must be bowed down to, we are told. And so today we see 
The same voice as we hear in verses 1 to 3 of this psalm. Do you, do you see that in our world? I'm speaking of something we see every day, aren't I? And we saw this evil conspiracy as well and plotting happen to Jesus Christ, didn't it? In Acts 4, when the church were facing persecution, the apostles used Psalm 2 to explain what was happening to them was what happened to Jesus Christ. And in Acts chapter 4 and verse 27, they prayed, For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do, what, um, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And what they said before that was, why did the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? And so on. They quoted Psalm 2. Jesus Christ had these conspiracies against him, in fact, with Jesus, Herod and the Pharisees and Pilate all working together, when for anything else they would have hated each other, but together they came against Jesus. The rulers and the kings of this world look powerful. They can be frightening. They can be intimidating. However, it's only until we hear the Lord speak which he does in verses 4 to 6, that we can be kind of frightened of these enemies. But secondly, in verses 4 to 6, we see, number two, the rebuke of the Lord. The rebuke of the Lord. Friends, God is not under threat. He's not under threat. He's not under threat by any of these plots against him. Look at verse 4. He... Who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them, or the Lord holds them in derision. So notice, first of all, the Lord sits, or he is enthroned. He's not running around in a panic, alright? He's sitting down. He's sitting in heaven, and he's sitting on his throne. And so some rulers and kings in the world are rebelling, but God sits in heaven. He is above all, and he sees all. And you get the impression here that he is looking down from above, a bit like in the Tower of Babel, where God kind of stoops down to kind of get a little look at this little rebellion going on on earth. It's nothing to him. What we see is him laughing and holding them in derision. It's a little bit like, imagine at home, um, this might not be an imagination for some of you, it might be real, but if you had goldfish, uh, a, a, little, a goldfish bowl, and you've got some goldfish swimming around in the bowl, and, and you go out one day after feeding them, and you come back in, and the goldfish have swum to the top of the bowl, and they haven't eaten the food, instead they've spelt out we're going to take over your house. All right? in, in food with the goldfish bowl. And you get in and you, you like look over and you're looking at this bowl and you're thinking, oh my word. <laughs> look what, you call your, you know, whoever else in your look at what they've done. Look at what these goldfish have done. And, you, and you, you, it's ridiculous, isn't it? What are they going to do? I mean, you, you can just spell back to them. I'm going to tip your bowl over. 
Right? And all you need to do is, ball goes over, bye-bye fish, right? Now, sounds cruel to the goldfish. I'm not advocating doing that. But you see the utter ridiculousness of what those fish are doing. And that's the kind of thing that's going on here. The world is like a, a goldfish bowl to God. We're, and, and we're like these little goldfish swimming around, kind of shaking our, fi- our fins at him. And God looks down, what are they doing? What are they doing? It's laughable. In fact, Isaiah chapter 40 says that the nations to God are like a drop in a bucket. You know, our nation that rebels against God isn't like a goldfish bowl. It is like a drop in the goldfish bowl to God. Our rebellion against him is laughable. And his laughter here is is derision. It's scorn. It's, It's saying how pathetic people are in their rebellion against him. How can we possibly think that we can throw off his word? How can we think that we can possibly take him off the throne and place us or anyone else there? It is laughable. And in verse 5, we go from derision to rebuke. Because whilst it is laughable, it is also very serious. Because God is angry at this rebellion. Uh, His anger here is not petulance. It is justice. His rule is good. His rule is freedom. It is for the good of all creation. Throwing off his rule results in much suffering. Why is there so much suffering in the world today? Because people have rejected God as their king. And you see it all around us. And God is angry. And he tells us so in rebuke. He speaks in his word against the kind of behavior that the wicked are free Or feel free to do. And God's wrath here is a terrifying thing. This is almighty God. It's not a light thing. It is terrifying. But notice in verse 5. What God does to terrify them. It's interesting. He terrifies them in his fury. Saying. Do you notice this? He says something which is terrifying. The display of his wrath here is by him saying something. What does he say? Notice verse 6. As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Here's the, the terrifying thing for our world. God has already done what they're trying to prevent. He has already done what the world is trying to prevent. His king is already installed. You can't uninstall him like some app on your phone. He's not going anywhere. He is already installed. You can try and kill his people. You can legislate. You can wave your flags. You can make your movies. You can sing your songs against him. You can try and indoctrinate our children. But Jesus is already installed. He is already king. And there is nothing you can do about it. You can't uninstall him. And the installation of God's king and the decree which we will we'll see shortly is set forever. It is done. And in fact, first of all, in this psalm, we can say it refers to King David. Uh, in 2 Samuel chapter 7, God made a covenant with David that he would sit on a throne that would last forever. So I'm just going to read you some words 
uh, from 2 Samuel 7, verses 8 and 9, where God makes this covenant with King David. He says, Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel, and I have been with you wherever you went, and have cut off all your enemies from before you, and I will make, you, make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. Despite much opposition, much of what we'll, we, we can read about, in fact, in the Psalms, if you were to read on, David was made king by God. And David ruled from Zion. Zion uh, speaks of the mounts in Jerusalem upon which the temple was built. And David did rule God's people in Jerusalem. But again, this psalm ultimately speaks not only of David, but ultimately of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the chosen one of God, the Messiah, the anointed one. He was opposed by the nations, even by his own people, and he was killed. But he rose from the dead on the third day. And he ascended into heaven and he sits at the right hand of the Father where he reigns forevermore. God has installed Jesus Christ as king forever. And as well as uh, the earthly Jerusalem, Zion can refer in the Bible to the heavenly dwelling place of God, which is where Jesus sits currently. Jesus is king. He is installed. He is given the highest place, the name above all names. He is the King of kings, he is the Lord of lords, and there is nothing that anybody can ever do to change that. And for the Christian, this is most encouraging. Because when we look around our world, and we turn on our TV screens, we put on our radio, or for those that have children in school, when they come home from school, and sometimes they'll tell you what they've been learning, or what we hear in Parliament or what they put on the, uh, the, 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 the restaurants, or whatever it might be you go to, and there appears to be this rebellion against God, the resurrection of Jesus Christ and his ascension into heaven shows that he is the one that truly reigns forever. And no goldfish bowl type of rebellion is going to defeat Almighty God. It will never win, ever. And so that should encourage us, it should comfort us, But it should be what terrifies our world. Because the one they are trying to stop has already been installed. And the biggest terror for our world is this. That Jesus Christ is king. Why is it terrifying? Because if he is installed as king, having died for sin and risen from the dead, if we do not turn to him, as we'll see at the end of the psalm, there is judgment coming upon that rebellion. And that truly is a terrifying thing, is it not? So, we've had two voices so far. But we come to a third voice, that is the voice of the king himself. The king who has been installed. And this voice is point number three. The rule of the Messiah. Verses seven to nine. The rule of the Messiah. So in verse seven we read... I will proclaim the Lord's decree. Now, a decree was a a document that pronounced that um, someone was the legitimate king. 
It is similar to what happened in our country a year ago when Queen Elizabeth II died. The very next day, a decree was read from St. James's Palace announcing that Charles was the rightful heir to the throne, that he is her son, and that he can reign. And King Charles read decrees when he had his coronation too. He had to, to be shown to be the rightful heir. And in the psalm, the king reads the decree from the Lord, the one enthroned in heaven. And the decree basically says, he is the rightful king to rule the earth. Notice what the decree says in verse 7. The Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And this language of father and son is what God said to David about the kings of Israel when he made a covenant with him in that passage in 2 Samuel chapter 7. In fact, in verse 14 of that chapter, it says, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. And the words in the psalm, today I have begotten you, speaks of a moment of commitment. So in a moment in time, in history, the king is proclaimed as such by, this Lord's de- by the Lord's decree. Now, this did happen with David and Solomon. There were decrees read that declared them as king over God's people. But again, we see this ultimately speaking of Jesus. Because this verse, verse 7, is repeated over and over again in the New Testament. So at the baptism of Jesus... In Matthew chapter 3, for example, a voice from heaven said, This is my son whom I love, with him I am well pleased. On the Mount of Transfiguration, when some disciples saw Jesus in his glory, in Matthew 17 verse 5 we read God saying, This is my son whom I love, with him I am well pleased. Listen to him. In Acts chapter 13, when Paul was uh, preaching... In a synagogue, uh, listen to what he said about Jesus in Acts 13, 32 and 33. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. As also it is written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And then in Hebrews chapter 1. The writer is showing how Jesus is superior to the angels and he quotes this verse to show Jesus is the son of God and that the psalm is about him. Because the writer to Hebrews in chapter 1 says, For which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Again in Hebrews chapter 5 and verse 5, Jesus is spoken of again, quoting this verse. Psalm 2 is possibly the most quoted psalm Or the one most alluded to for certain in the New Testament. Speaking of Jesus as God's king. And so I hope you get the point. Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the king installed to rule over God's world. And the privileges of that rule are spoken of in verse 8. As the son, he can ask of the father. Indeed, is commanded to ask of the Father to make the nations his heritage. Now, at the moment, those nations are rebelling against God. But they'll be given to King Jesus. He will possess the whole earth. 
And that was never true of David, but we do see it in Jesus. For in Matthew chapter 28, the Great Commission goes out to make disciples, doesn't it, of of who? Of all nations. And making disciples is making followers of King Jesus, citizens of the kingdom who worship the king. And later in the Bible, in Revelation chapter 7, we read how people from all nations worship Jesus and how the earth will be filled with his glory as he rules over his people over the whole world. And so we see in Jesus that all the nations will be given to him. People from every one of those nations will bow down in worship of King Jesus. And for those conspiring and plotting against the Lord and his anointed, they will find themselves under the judgment of this king. Look at verse 9. It says, you shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. This is still read, uh, the king reading the decree. The decree says what the king is able to do. And it says that Jesus will break them with a rod of iron. Uh, the rod is a, a scepter that shows the rule of the king. And the iron speaks of the strength of it. In fact, we see this image used in Revelation a number of times. Uh, For example, in Revelation 19, we see Jesus coming to execute judgment on the nations. And in verses 15 and 16, it says this. From his mouth comes a, a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written. King of kings and Lord of lords. And so the judgment of God is coming on all rebels through Jesus. The rod of iron will smash the rebels, smash the nations like pottery. In fact, this image of pottery is an interesting one. Because in ancient times, it was a common and vivid image. What people would do with their clay pots is if they were wanting to curse somebody, they would write the name of the person or the nation on a piece of pottery. They would utter the curse and then smash the piece of pottery on the floor to to show what was going to happen to them through their curse. And so God is using that common imagery of the time to show that the nations rebelling and conspiring and raging and plotting will be smashed like a piece of pottery. They look strong, they look powerful, but they are like a pot that is dropped on the floor and smashed to pieces. God is in charge. So the decree is read, Jesus is the son, the nations are his, he rules with a rod of iron, he will smash his enemies. And so then, the question for us is this, how should we respond? And so for this, we come to the voice of the psalmist. And in verses 10 to 12, point number four, we see the response to the decree. The response to the decree. Notice at the start of verse 10, we see, now therefore. So this is the response 
to what we've just heard. There is a rebellion. It is futile. The king is installed. He's coming to judge you. What should we do then? Well, there's a, what we should do is two things. There is a, something to be wise about and something to be warned about. Be wise and be warned. The wisdom is found in verse 11. And by the way, before I, look, I, I tell you about the wisdom, I want to point something else out very briefly. Notice in verse 10, it speaks to the rulers of the earth. Don't make the mistake of thinking, oh, this is just for King Charles and Rishi Sunak or any other ruler of the world. In Psalm 8, we read there that humanity was made to rule on the earth under God. And so this psalm does speak to all of us, to every person in this room. So all of us are called to be wise and to be warned. And so the wisdom then is found in verse 11. Notice the response in verse 11 to Jesus. Serve the Lord with fear, rejoice with trembling. Serving the Lord is following his word, and we do so with fear. The fear is an awareness of who God is, the seriousness of his word, and the destructive consequences of rebellion. And his rule is is to be rejoiced in, to be celebrated. It's a a joyful submission. It's not a a, a submission to a a horrible uh, dictator who's out to get us, but to a worthy but loving Heavenly Father who loves us and offers us true freedom. But again, we do this with trembling. It's not unthinking. It is to the one who sits in the heavens. That's the wise response. Conscientious service of the King of Kings. But the warning is found in verse 12. Here's the warning. Kiss the son or he will be angry and you perish in the way for his wrath is quickly kindled. To kiss the son is to pay homage to him. Uh, You may have seen this kind of thing in in movies that show kings from very long ago. And they might get someone to like kiss their ring. Have you ever seen anything like that? Um, That's the kind of thing going on. It's a sign of submission to a ruler. It's to be stripped of our arrogance and pride and to come under this king. It's to come under his good rule. A rule that's worth rejoicing in. But the warning is, if you don't... He will be angry. And again, this anger is not petulance. It is a settled opposition to evil. All of which comes from the result of not submitting to him. And the way of rebellion leads to destruction. Notice it says you perish in the way. And that perishing speaks of judgment and speaks of hell. There is hell to pay for those who do not kiss the sun. That's the warning here. Notice in verse 12 how it says, For his wrath is quickly kindled. The picture here, um, we went to a, a youth camp last week and we had a, had a bonfire. Because it was bonfire night. Or day before, but anyway. Uh, and the, the fire um, rages and it goes down and then it becomes kindling. And it's easy to build it back up again because you just put more fuel on it, don't you? You put more wood on it or whatever it might be. And the picture here is at the moment the the wrath of God is like a kindling. But at any moment that he chooses, 
He can add the fuel and it rages. Why is it only kindling at the moment? Mercy. Mercy. He's holding back his anger to give a chance for people to kiss the sun. But there is coming a day, and it can be any moment, where his wrath can flare up. That can either be where our lives are taken from us, or it could be his imminent return. Jesus can come back at any time. And we don't know when this will be, and so the warning is, come now. Kiss the sun now. But notice the way of escape at the end of verse 12. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. You cannot escape him, but you can take refuge in him. The one who displays wrath is the one who also is the refuge from wrath, isn't it? He is our refuge from the wrath of God that we deserve. And we know this because Jesus is the king who took the wrath we deserve upon himself as he died on the cross for our sin. One commentator says, there is no refuge from him, only in him. And so tonight I urge you, kiss the sun, come under his rule, which is the way to blessing. It is the way to live the full and abundant life you were made for. So don't delay, because his wrath can flare up in a moment. Well, I want to finish with one final thought. Because the blessing of God is not only escaping his wrath. It's not only living the best life we can for him in the here and now as we live under his good rule. The ultimate blessing is our final hope that's coming. Because Jesus is the king, not only who reigns, but the king who we will reign with. Because Revelation has one final quote from Psalm 2. And it's found in Revelation 2 and verse 27. In writing to the church in Thyatira, Jesus says these words in chapter 2, verses 26 and 27. Notice the echo of Psalm, well, the quote of Psalm 2. The one who conquers and who keeps my, work, my works unto the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my father. The one who conquers is, and endures to the end is the one who keeps following Jesus. To that one, Jesus speaks of them ruling with him just as he received authority from his father. Christian, let me close with these words of encouragement to you. We will be like Jesus. We will share in his reign. We will be glorifying God forever. Sinners like us. Ones who were once with the rebels. Reigning with Jesus in glory forever. And despite all that the enemies may throw at us, God has decreed this will happen. Truly, blessed are all who take refuge in him. Amen. Amen. Amen.